0: The book of Isaiah, chapter 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he beheld concerning Judea and Jerusalem during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Four kings. And there is another one that's not mentioned. That is the son of Hezekiah, King Manasseh, who was the most wicked king of Israel that ever lived. And because of the sins of Manasseh, Judea and the people of Judah were exiled and taken captive and destroyed by the Babylonians. From Manasseh on, it was kind of a point of no return, because the iniquity of the people of Israel had become so gross, that was the turning point in Judea's history. And probably because of that, Manasseh's name is not mentioned. Isaiah's ministry seemed to have been mostly documented to be from the year of King Uzziah's death, which was in 742 B.C., and that is discussed chronologically in chapter 6. Chronologically, chapter 6 is the first chapter of the book of Isaiah. Chapter 1 is the preface, which is not actually the first chapter chronologically. This chapter dates chronologically, chapter 1 does, from 701 B.C., some 41 years later, when the Assyrians were coming into the Promised Land, had already gone into the northern kingdom and uh, were threatening Judea. So five kings, really, in the Ascension of Isaiah, an apocryphal manuscript, the Ascension of Isaiah it's called, it's discussed how Isaiah was sawn in half uh, at the direction of King Manasseh. And there was a false prophet, Beliar, who accused Isaiah of various things. And Isaiah fled from Jerusalem to Bethlehem and lived there for a time. And when they started harassing him there, he fled into the sticks, into the wilderness of the Negev apparently. And there they caught up with him and they caught him finally and sawed him in half. And probably he is the one that Paul mentions where they stoned the prophets and put them to death and sawed them in half and things like that. No doubt that's where that tradition came from. And that's discussed in the Ascension of Isaiah. And the Ascension of Isaiah, to me, is is a valid and and true book for the most part, if not all of it. Because it has many things in it that are not particularly Jewish and not particularly Christian. Hear, O heavens, verse 2, give heed, O earth, the Lord has spoken. The heavens and the earth are called upon, first of all, because they were witnesses to the Sinai covenant that Moses made with Israel that god made with israel through the agency of moses and the heavens were called and the earth were called upon to witness that israel had become the people of god and he had become uh, their god and they were his people now the heavens and the earth of course are not just the physical heavens and earth but those inhabitants of heaven and those inhabitants of earth who are to witness when god made a covenant with israel moses said Uh, that this covenant was made both with those who were present and those who were not present and which alludes to the idea that there were others yet to come to earth of the house of Israel who would also be party to this covenant in their mortality. And of course then there were those who had already gone beyond such as Abraham, Isaac and Jacob who were also witnesses of that covenant made with their descendants. Hear, O heavens, give heed, O earth, the Lord has spoken. When the Lord speaks, it's kind of by way of decree or at a time of necessitating some kind of intervention or um, taking stock of things. Things go along for a time and then they get either better or they get worse, and at either juncture, the Lord speaks and pronounces something. Uh, either by way of judgment, condemning Israel or um, by way of um, pronouncing blessings or a higher calling or something along those lines. But it's something official and formal. I have reared sons, brought them up, but they have revolted against me. Sons is a technical term in ancient Eastern covenant terminology, which means vassals, or those who have a servant or sonship or vassalship with the emperor king, suzerain besides meaning literally his children, in Hebrew, banim also means children, can be male or female in that sense, besides that literal interpretation, therefore it has this kind of covenant connotation, that it means that, that these are people who have a covenant relationship with God, and that is, of course, the people of Israel, and people within Israel, individuals, brought them up, or elevated them in another sense, It's like you'd raise a child physically, so you also elevate them to a special calling or special duties or privileges, but they have revolted against me, like rebellious sons, like teenagers or other rebellious children. So these act. Now, in the ancient Near East, when an emperor had a covenant relationship with his vassal kings, who ruled over various city-states in his empire, sometimes a vassal king or a number of them would rebel, would revolt against the suzerain or the emperor. That is kind of hinted at here. So it has this dual connotation of literal children and also covenant vassals. The ox knows its owner, the ass its master stall, but Israel does not know, my people are insensible. Verse 3. The ox is a clean animal, it's kosher, uh, because it divides the hoof and chews the cud. The ass is not, the ass is an unclean animal. And all the way through you will find this imagery in Isaiah of the clean and the unclean. And in a Latter-day context, that's very telling because the Lord has a covenant relationship with his people Israel. But into that covenant are also brought the Gentiles, or those Gentiles who wish to covenant with the Lord also become his covenant people. And they are represented by the ass. And the ox are represented by, represent the natural lineages. So the the ox, the natural lineages, and the ass, the mingled lineages of Israel, or those who come of the Gentiles. And that's common all the way through the Hebrew prophets. The clean animals represent the natural lineages, and the unclean represent the Gentiles, or the, the mingled lineages of Israel. The ox knows its owner. To know is another technical term that we get from ancient or covenant language. Uh, it is a covenant term even in the, way back in, in the sense that Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore a son. They have a covenant relationship between them. To know someone expresses that covenant relationship. Like how, does the, uh, how can you serve someone whom you don't know? You know them when you've covenanted with them and reached an agreement with them. But Israel does not know. In other words, Israel has broken the covenant. Israel has become alienated from God and has rejected her suzerain or or emperor, who is the Lord, her king, and she doesn't know him anymore. She's gone her own way. She's forgotten about her relationship with him. My people are insensible. In Hebrew, lo yitbonen. It means become undiscerning, dense, not astute, kind of dull. And it's in parallel with to know, or not to know. And so it kind of uh, kind of underscores the disintegration of the relationship and the accompanying ignorance that ensues, both as to things spiritual and and then manifesting itself even in other areas of life. Reminds me of what Paul said, the things of God knows no man but those who are endowed with the Spirit of God. So if you don't have the Spirit of God, you don't discern spiritual things. Alas, a nation astray. So it is the whole nation. It's en masse apostasy. A nation astray, a people weighed down by sin, which uh, parallels sin with going astray. I'm going to stray from the Lord. The offspring of wrongdoers, perverse children, here it's becoming generational already. It's not just all happening in one generation. It's happening over several generations. But it is, it's kind of a, a national or a group phenomenon. Everybody's involved, except a few individuals. People weighed down by sin, their sins the offspring of wrongdoers, perverse children. Notice the gradual alienation and rebellion and apostasy of the people. First of all, they kind of revolt a little bit. Then they begin to be ignorant about the things of God. Then they are astray. Before they know it, they're already out in the left field. Then sins begin to weigh them down, or as they're becoming abundant and burdening them, then they actually go out and do wrong, wrongdoers. Then they become perverse, which is another step. Each uh, step is is a, adds a new dimension in the degree of apostasy. Finally, they have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel. They have lapsed into apostasy. Then it's outright forsaking of the Lord. It's no longer just dabbling or just a little bit alienated. It's outright departing from the Lord, spurning him. They have lapsed into apostasy. In Hebrew, nazo achor means they have become estranged. They have gone backwards to what they used to be when they were in bondage in Egypt, when they were idolaters. They have gone and become like everybody else, perhaps worse so because of the light that they had. And that's where their apostasy is complete. So you can see that it's Apostasy over several generations, two or three, and it takes a while. Finally, it's complete. Then we have, and all the way through already we have, the consequences of breaking the covenant, which are the covenant curses. In the Lord's covenant with Israel, the Sinai covenant, there were a whole string of blessings attached and a whole string of curses that are outlined in Deuteronomy 28. And... So long as Israel would keep the terms of the covenant, the blessings would be hers. But if she broke the terms of the covenant, the law of the covenant, or the law of Moses, the curses would fall upon her, and that's now what's happening. So we have here cause and effect. Why be smitten further by adding to your waywardness? The whole head is sick, the whole heart diseased. So being smitten of God because of waywardness, apostasy, the whole head is sick, the whole heart disease diseased, the whole establishment from head to toe. It's a national phenomenon, like he said earlier. Now, the head, as in the cross-reference there, chapter 9, verse 15, the head is the leadership of the people, both political and religious. In Isaiah, the political and the religious are always on a par, spiritually, whether for good or for evil. The whole heart diseased. Even to the core, the people are sick. And it's like an incurable sickness, too. It's not just something like a flu, winter flu or something. The head and heart also, of course, have male female connotations. From the soles of the feet, even to the head, there is nothing sound. Again, the whole establishment only wounds and bruises and festering sores, like those of a slave. Or person under some kind of curse that doesn't have recourse to being ministered to. They have not been pressed out or bound up nor soothed with ointment. Just like a galley slave or somebody in bondage who's not cared for. Somebody in a gulag. If they get sick, that's just too bad. If they get sores, that's their problem. They're dispensable, so... And that's how Israel has become. Kind of reminds you of the parable of the prodigal son, doesn't it? How the son kind of rebelled from his father and squandered his inheritance. And uh, and then he was kind of worse off than a slave. I think he became a swineherd, as I recall. He thought it would be better off to become one of his father's slaves, servants. Now also, there is a lot of antithesis in the book of Isaiah all the way through the book. And whatever happens to the wicked, the opposite happens to the righteous, and vice versa. Whatever happens to the righteous, the opposite happens to the wicked. So we see things like being healed and being soothed and and anointings, and we see that kind of thing later on for the righteous. And they're in direct opposition. The exact opposite of what happens to the one group is the opposite of what happens to the other. And these are just kind of spread all the way through Isaiah. He doesn't say, Look, uh, this is where... It happens to the righteous, and that's what it happens. It's for you to find out where these where these antitheses are by searching through the book of Isaiah. Verse seven. Your land is ruined, your city is burned with fire. So bondage is implied in the previous verse, verse six, and now invasion by enemies and destruction by fire and by the sword. And that is also a covenant curse. Bondage is a covenant curse. Bondage to enemies or to false systems or authorities is a covenant curse. An invasion by enemies is a covenant curse. The promised land is a covenant blessing. The promised land uh, is given to Israel or to anyone who covenants with the Lord and remains theirs until they transgress and uh, are dispossessed of the promised land because of their own doing. And the two main ingredients of the Lord's covenant with anybody are a promised land and enduring offspring. So we have here infringement on one of those two fundamental blessings of the covenant. Here it's talking about the land. Your land is ruined, your city is burned with fire. Now, again, there are so many word links throughout the book of Isaiah, and those word links are a key to understanding the book. Besides the overarching structures that are there, that spell out their own message, that we don't have time to talk about today, there are so many numerous word links, linking one idea to another, all the way through the book of Isaiah, like a big tapestry. They're like threads that connect everything. So you can't just take one verse and study it to death and isolate it from the others and make head or tail of it. You can't do that. You have to connect it to all these other places in the book of Isaiah that are there, that are linked to it by means of word links. And one such word link here is fire. The cities are burned with fire. Okay. Let's see, we also see in verse 20, people are eaten by the sword. In other words, there you have the land taken away, or destroyed, and here you have the people taken away by the sword, destroyed by the sword, by the fire and by the sword. Those two are usually in parallel. Here they're separated by a few verses. But the words fire and sword are metaphors, and they describe a person, or two persons. In other words, the king of Assyria is one such person, He personifies the Lord's fire that consumes the wicked or destroys the cities. And he personifies the Lord's sword that destroys the wicked and puts people to death. But so is the Lord's servant in the book of Isaiah. There is a particular servant mentioned all the way through who also personifies the Lord's fire and his sword. And his job is to consume the wicked in the sense of those who destroy the Lord's people, namely the king of Assyria and his armies. He's the fire that consumes them. And so in the book of Isaiah, we have these two main human actors all the way through. And in many places, they're mentioned directly and explicitly, and they refer to them as the king of Assyria this, the king of Assyria that, or the servant this and the servant that. But they also appear under pseudonyms. And those pseudonyms are these metaphors. And so on one level you can say the cities are burned with fire. Okay? That's literal. And that's the simple interpretation and that's always the first one that we should look at. But there's another underlying interpretation on a metaphorical or allegorical level and that is that the king of Assyria is the one who's doing the destroying. He's the fire. He's the sword. He's the one who comes and uh, is the Lord's instrument for dealing and in inflicting punishments or covenant curses upon his Apostate people. Now let's go back and introduce another idea. Who are these apostate people as far as we're concerned? In ancient Israel, it's clear if you read this as a historical account of things that happened in Isaiah's time, there was an ancient king of Assyria who came in, and we see that under the terms of the covenant, so long as Israel Maintained and kept the terms of the covenant, she would be the head of the nations, and other nations would have no power over her. But when Israel transgressed against the terms of the covenant, other nations would become the head, and Israel would become the tail. And in my book that I did for R.K. Harrison, a book in honor of a professor that I studied under called Israel's Apostasy and Restoration, it's a book of about 21 essays and chapters. There's one that documents the rise of Assyria to world power, to prominence in the ancient Near East, as the power or superpower of that day. And that rise of Assyria over several generations happens in direct correspondence to Israel's apostasy. So whenever Israel apostatized, or when Israel went to another degree of apostasy, as we saw here, another element of its apostasy occurred, and Israel began to break the terms of the covenant then the Assyrians came into power and finally they became the head of the nations and Israel became the tail, the lowest of all the nations. Now that happened in Isaiah's day and soon thereafter. It happened by degrees. First of all, the northern kingdom was taken captive and destroyed by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians came a generation later and did the same thing to Judea, the Jews, the southern kingdom of Judah. Because we had anciently two kingdoms, the kingdoms of the ten tribes of the north and the kingdom of the two or three tribes of the south, the Jewish tribes, Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. Now that's clear as far as a historical context is concerned, but what about a Latter-day context? Uh, How does this apply to us today? Why would this be relevant to us today? Because most books on Isaiah take this as something that happened in their day and they kind of keep it safe at arm's length and it doesn't apply to us, so we don't need to worry about it because we're... This is not us. Uh, we're good, aren't we? We are the people of God, so those bad Jews and everybody else that did these things, you know, they deserve that, and too bad for them, and we're okay. And that's kind of a mentality that people have today, and so they don't apply everything that Isaiah spoke to themselves. So who's it talking about? Well, one of the things that uh, my introductory classes discuss is that Isaiah can be read on two distinct levels. And the structures in the book of Isaiah establish a Latter-day context for the entire book, as well as for an ancient context for the entire book, or for most of the book. So that, like the Jews say, these prophecies of Isaiah and other Hebrew prophets apply back then, but they also apply to our day. And we can read them as something that pertains to us. When we do that, when we take the whole book of Isaiah, according to these apocalyptic structures that are in the book of Isaiah and apply it to ourselves, and we have to ask, well, who is the Israel then spoken of that is apostatizing and incurring all of these judgments? And the only conclusion that you can come to is that the Israel that apostatizes in the latter days or in the end time of the world, the end of the world, are those who have covenanted with the Lord now, who are now the covenant people of the Lord, and who are now breaking their covenants, and who will now incur these judgments God, and they are going to be dealt with according to these prophecies of Isaiah, in the same way as the ancient Israelites were dealt with then following their apostasy. So who's that? Well, if we claim to be Israel and the covenant people of the Lord, then it's us. Then there are those among us who are going through these kind of motions, or will go through these kind of motions. And we don't need to look any further afield and point the finger at anybody else. The odd phenomenon is that There are two kinds of Israelites that help explain the situation. Anciently, there were the natural lineages of Israel, and they apostatized, and they were exiled, and they incurred these judgments of God back in history. And as a result of their exile and dispersion and scattering, many Gentiles or Gentile nations were infused with the blood of Israel. There came into being the mingled lineages of Israel. And there are also those, however, that maintain their ethnic integrity, such as the Jews, there are peoples of the earth, of the house of Israel, who have maintained their ethnic integrity as Israelites. And anciently, when those ethnic lineages, like the Jews, rejected the gospel, rejected Christ, apostatized, then the covenant with Israel, or the gospel, which is part of the covenant with Israel, is a covenant blessing and covenant heritage, and it was actually part of the Lord's um, relationship with his people manifested on a higher level in the Law of Moses, but it was part of the same milieu. Those who rejected that cut themselves off, and then those blessings, those privileges of that covenant could go to the mingling of Israel among the Gentiles. Because by the time the Jews rejected Christ, the scattering of Israel among the Gentiles had already been in place for some centuries. And there were Jews who had maintained their ethnic integrity, and there were Jews or Israelites, who had lost their identity, who had become known as Gentiles, they had assimilated into the Gentiles. But because of that mingling of the lineages, the gospel or the blessings or privileges of the Lord's covenant with Israel could go to the Gentiles by right of lineage, whereas that could not have happened before. So in a sense, we see that God is using and orchestrates, as it were, the scattering and exile of Israel, the dispersion of Israel for the good of the world, for the good of the Gentiles, who could then have claim upon being Israel, have claim upon God, and come into his covenant with him. So when the ethnic lineages reject the gospel, it can go by right of lineage to the mingled lineages of Israel. However, in the end time of the world, the end of the world, that situation is reversed. Uh, those mingled lineages who have been given the gospel in the end time reject it, break their covenants with God, and then the gospel and its privileges go back to the ethnic lineages. The Jews, the ten tribes. And that's where that expression, the first will be last and the last will be first, comes from. It only happens under those terms. It doesn't happen any other way. The Gospel was not given to the Gentiles, and by Gentiles I mean, in quote, because of the mingled lineages among the Gentiles. So you have to qualify that term, Gentiles, and say Israel among the Gentiles, or Israel assimilated among the Gentiles. When the ethnic lineages rejected the Gospel, it went to the Gentiles, or rather, it could not go to the Gentiles until the ethnic lineages rejected it. And so in the latter days, the opposite happens as well. It cannot go back to the ethnic lineages in power and in force until the mingled lineages have rejected it, or until the Gentiles have rejected it. So, it's clear then who we're talking about here in Isaiah as far as historical context is concerned, but what about a latter day context? Who are we talking about? The apostasy of Israel that we're talking about is the apostasy of the mingled lineages of Israel, of the Gentiles who have a covenant relationship with God. The phenomenon of that whole thing involved the Jews as a whole rejecting Christ, Mm -hmm. but Christ's disciples carrying the Gospel to the Gentiles. And in the end time, the opposite happens, as I said. As a whole, the Gentiles will reject the Gospel, but some who are faithful servants of God will carry it to the ethnic lineages. And in Isaiah, those are called the Lord's servant and servants. And they are the equivalent of John's 144,000 servants. And they're the ones who carry it back to the Jews and to the ten tribes. Who is apostatizing? We are. Whose land is going to be invaded? Ours. Who is incurring all of these judgments that are being talked about from here on out? We will. There are no other candidates. All those who, in any way at all today, have some kind of covenant with God, with the Lord, God of Israel. That includes anybody who claims to be a Christian or a follower of Jesus Christ. Your native soil is devoured by aliens in your presence. Again, that word aliens is a linking word to the Assyrians in the book of Isaiah. They are the aliens that come in, and they are an alliance of nations led by the king of Assyria, who actually conquered the entire world. And the only place they're not able to conquer totally is Zion. And that's what we see here in the next verse. All the way through Isaiah, you'll find those aliens, those foreigners, is a reference to the Assyrians. Laid waste at its takeover by foreigners. And they're very destructive, as they were anciently. The Latter-day Assyrians, whoever they are, Assyria was a world power from the north, militaristic, the first in time to conquer the ancient world by military force. Therefore, it set a precedent for that kind of world conquest. And whatever set a precedent became a type that Isaiah uses for a future replay of such an event. In Isaiah, nothing that happens in the latter days, but it has some kind of type or precedent in the past, in Israel's history the latter days is a repeat scenario of every major event of Israel's ancient history. Not in the same order, because many of those events happened over millennia of time, but as far as the last days scenario is concerned, it's a replay, a quick succession of all these events of Israel's past, and invasion of the promised land and takeover by, and laying waste by foreigners is one of those events that has a second fulfillment in the end time. The daughter of Zion is left. Now, when it uses the word left like that, again, it's a word link. It has many other instances of it throughout the book of Isaiah. It means to survive destruction. It refers to a remnant. It refers to a few for whom the Lord provides a way of escape or deliverance when everybody else is annihilated. The daughter of Zion, or the daughter Zion, in the book of Isaiah, and all through the Hebrew prophets, the Lord's people are likened to a woman who has a covenant relationship with the Lord. And that woman is Israel. And she is the people of Israel. And what she does is what the people are doing. And she symbolizes Israel, or God's people. Now, in the book of Isaiah, those who survive a latter-day destruction are not just Israel. Israel. Because the people of Israel in general have apostatized or are apostatizing. So who is it that survives? It's not all the people of Israel. It's the small remnants. They're given a new name, the name Zion or Jerusalem. Two names that are often used in parallel. And they define a category of people within Israel. Not all Israel, but kind of an elect category within Israel. So whenever it uses the term Zion or Jerusalem, you're talking about an elect group, not everybody. And they're on a higher level than people in general. And in our opening seminars, we discussed how there are different steps on a spiritual ladder, and Zion in Jerusalem is a higher degree than Jacob or Israel. The daughter of Zion is left, or survives, like a remnant. Like a shelter in a vineyard, a hut in a melon field, the shelter and the hut are in parallel, the vineyard and the melon field are in parallel. The vineyard in chapter 5 is the house of Israel. It's also the world in chapter 27. It's the promised land, in a sense. But the promised land eventually covers in the millennium the whole world. And the word shelter is used all the way through Isaiah. It has many word links to it. All the way through, it implies protection from the storm. And the storm is the day of judgment, a day of universal judgment, the punishment of the wicked worldwide, from which only the righteous are delivered. We've got tons of links here already to that scenario, to that end-time scenario of the Lord coming to the earth, preceded by the cleansing of the earth, when the wicked are destroyed from the face of the earth, and the righteous are preserved and live on into a millennial time of peace. And the Lord provides a shelter for the righteous in the form of a cloud of glory signifying his presence. A cloud of glory by day and a fire by night and it is a shelter and shade from the heat of the storm. A secret refuge from the downpour and from rain as it says in chapter 4 verses 5 and 6 which are cross-referenced there in the margin. A hut and a melon field. Now, these things imply that there's a watchman there, because the hut and the shelter were just temporary shelters, but they were effective. They sheltered the watchman from the heat of the sun or from rain, and he kept watch over the field in case anybody came, or wild animals or people came to steal the fruit or the produce. And he was just there to take care of things. Now, watchmen in the book of Isaiah are used as a metaphor to describe the Lord's prophets. They're the watchmen on the tower. They're the watchmen who keep watch, who report any danger, sign of danger. So that means that those who survive in the shelter have a prophet to guide them or to lead them. They don't just survive by happenstance because they happen to be in the right place at the right time they are led by a prophet of god that's why they survive that's why they're left a city under siege the last line of that verse verse 8 a shelter in the vineyard a hut in the melon field a city under siege so we see that the shelter and the hut are parallel with the city as if they're synonymous ideas now in isaiah there are two cities all the way through the book of isaiah there is the idea of two cities One is the righteous city that survives, as in this case, that survives siege, that survives destruction. The other city is the city of the wicked that goes into the dust. It's totally destroyed, reduced to nothing. So there's kind of a juxtaposition between two cities, as there is between two women in the book of Isaiah. Here we have the daughter of Zion, but there's also the daughter of Babylon, and she's a harlot. And she represents as an archetype all wickedness and all the wicked inhabitants of the earth. And here the daughter of Zion is an archetype of the elect, of a select group of the covenant people of the Lord that survives destruction and lives on into the millennial time of peace. Then we also have two covenants in the book of Isaiah, the covenant of life and a covenant with death. And the wicked choose the covenant with death and the righteous or the elect choose the covenant of life or with life. They live. They are delivered at a time when everybody else is going through their death. So that dichotomy is all the way through the book of Isaiah, but you wouldn't catch it just by reading verse by verse, would you? You have to look at these word links. You have to take the word city and follow it all the way through the book of Isaiah, the word shelter and, and Zion and fire and sword and everything else. When you do that, that's why we have a concordance in the back of my blue book, to help you with that. When you take the word city all the way through you see that there are these two cities and you see the characteristics of each city. The one is an exalted city, it has all these proud people in it that oppress the righteous and the high and mighty, the elite peoples of the earth, have all those characteristics of those people. And they go into the dust. And then there is this other city that the Lord comes and dwells with these people. It's that kind of city. It's the city of the Lord that houses and protects the righteous of the earth. Now, it there's a city under siege. In Hebrew, under siege is Nitzurah, which means to be under siege, but also to be preserved. It has a double meaning in Hebrew. So it's a city under siege, but it's also a city that's preserved, preserved of God, preserved intact. Nitzurah. It means to come under attack, certainly, but also to survive that attack. The very fire that destroys the wicked preserves the righteous. The righteous walk through the fire, Isaiah says, later on. He says they will walk through the fire. The very fire, the same fire that destroys the wicked. So it's kind of a paradox here. They have to be willing to go under siege. They have to be willing to be tested and tried by the Lord to see if they'll be faithful to him when the Assyrians laid siege to Zion or Jerusalem in the days of King Hezekiah, as we'll read about in chapters 36 and 37 and 38, they could have capitulated and gone over to the Assyrians. The Assyrians said, all you have to do is come out to us and uh, we'll give you a land flowing with milk and honey somewhere else. Yes, you'll be part of our empire. You'll be subject to us. You'll become our slaves. They didn't mention that, but that's all involved. But all you have to do to spare your lives is to come out and... Become one of us. And then we'll put you somewhere else, and we'll put other people here, and they displace people from one part of the empire to the other. And um, the people stayed put. The people were loyal to their king, the king was loyal to God, and God destroyed the Assyrian horde in one night. 185,000 that laid siege to the ancient city of Jerusalem or Zion in the days of King Hezekiah. And that is the historical context the thing that happened in 701 BC that this chapter relates to. But in the latter days, it has a replay, it has a second fulfillment. And we have to be like those people then, willing to suffer the siege, willing to stick it out, to rely upon the Lord, not on the arm of flesh. And then he will come through for us and deliver us. Had not the Lord of hosts left us a few survivors? There's the word left again, as in verse 8. Verse 8 in the sense of some survivors, like I said. And that's all the way through Isaiah, not just here. We should have been as Sodom or become like Gomorrah. Well, who were the survivors of Sodom and Gomorrah? Lot and his two daughters. How come they survived? Well, for one thing, Lot was a righteous man. His daughters survived because of Lot, because they went with Lot, therefore they obeyed him. His wife did not obey him or did not go along with him and she was burned up with the wicked in Sodom. And that's a type. Sodom and Gomorrah is a type all the way through Isaiah, both of the destruction of the wicked, which later on we see in chapter 13 how Babylon is destroyed as Sodom and Gomorrah, and then Isaiah defines Babylon as the world at large and its wicked inhabitants. So we have a worldwide Sodom and Gomorrah type of destruction that Isaiah predicts. But out of Sodom came Lot, and his two daughters. Those who did not go along with Lot remained behind. And that's also a type. In the book of Isaiah, there is an exodus out of Babylon on the eve of the destruction. It's a literal exodus. And not everybody goes, just like Lot's wife did not go. I don't think Lot's wife could really believe that such a destruction as happened could ever happen. Solomon and Gomorrah had been there for generations. Thousands of years. Why suddenly a rain of fire and brimstone out of the sky would just annihilate everything in just a few moments and it'd be all gone? She had a comfortable house there. She just couldn't make the mental shift to anything like that. Why? The answer is because she was not in tune with the Lord, didn't have the spirit of revelation, she didn't feel the warning to get out, like Lot did. In fact, the Lord sent angels to get Lot out. Remember that in the account? In fact, the angels even had a strong arm Lot a little bit to get him out of there. And that is a type and shadow of the last days where Jesus says in Matthew 24 that he will send his angels, and they will gather up his elect from the four quarters of the earth. And in Isaiah, that gathering is in an exodus, in an exodus out of all parts of the earth to Zion. And Zion is a safe place, a place where the Lord protects His people in the last days. And He also protects them in the Exodus itself, as He did anciently with the Israelites, in their exodus out of Egypt. So, verse 9, Had not the Lord of hosts left us a few survivors, we should have been as Sodom or become like Gomorrah. Well, that tells us a lot, because it tells us that the wickedness of the people is like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's what we saw earlier. The people had become perverse, right? They spurned the Holy One of Israel, lapsed into apostasy, had become totally estranged from God. It also tells us the character of the estrangement of the immorality and wickedness. The Sodomites were murderers. They were uh, homosexuals. They were uh, robbers. They were a den of thieves. They had no respect for human life or persons toward the end of their time. So... One would be lucky to survive such a society. Also, the name Sodom and Gomorrah became a curse, a warning to the whole world, really. You You say Sodom and Gomorrah, what do you think of? You think of that horrendous destruction that happened following that horrendous wickedness. And that is what's implied here. In chapter 13, like I said, Babylon, which is identified as the world at large and its wicked inhabitants, is destroyed in the Sodom and Gomorrah type of destruction. Does that mean that the world at large as a whole is going to have a rain of fire and brimstone all over it? Probably not. There could be some cosmic cataclysm, as chapter 13 talks about. But in Isaiah, the one that does the destruction of the cities with fire is the king of Assyria. He destroys the cities with fire and by the sword. So we, we look more toward that kind of scenario than some kind of natural phenomenon. Now cities are destroyed violently with thunderous quakings, resounding booms, tempestuous blasts, and conflagrations of devouring flame. As in chapter 29, verse 6, there is the possibility of something like a nuclear holocaust alluded to here or in the book of Isaiah in general when it talks about cities being destroyed in an instant, turned into flying dust and chaff. So it could be that this king of Assyria does the burning with fire by destroying a Latter-day civilization through a nuclear holocaust. That is one possible scenario. Anyway, that is an ominous idea. It's an ominous threat when he starts using that kind of language. A few survivors, one or two, we should have been a Sodom or become like Gomorrah. And he means it. He's not just kidding. Like I said, he's not kidding when he uses those words. He's not just using hyperbole And saying, well, you know, I'm just going to warn you, and that, just using some horrendous words like that. No, it's actually a repeat performance of a Sodom and Gomorrah destruction. And it is also a repeat performance of the wickedness that preceded the Sodom and Gomorrah destruction. He calls the people here in verse 10, Sodom and Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you leaders of Sodom, give heed to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The law of our God. Our God implies the covenant relationships that God's people have with the Lord. He's our God, we are his people. That is a technical term, defining the covenant relationship that Israel has with the Lord God of Israel. Hear the word of the Lord. It's like that earlier verse that we talked about that said, the Lord has spoken. The Lord speaks through his servant in the book of Isaiah, through his servants. And so this implies that a servant is speaking. And that servant is coming to warn of that kind of destruction. Because the Lord does nothing save he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. And they tell the people, they warn. He's the watchman that warns the people. In chapter 21, there's a watchman appointed who is to warn the people of the coming destruction of Babylon. And Babylon is destroyed in the Sodom and Gomorrah destruction. So there is warning given ahead of time through the Lord's servants. Isaiah, in his own day, was such a servant and gave such a warning, as we'll see in chapter 20. For three years he predicted the destruction of Egypt and Cush by the Assyrians, and then it was fulfilled. And that is a type for our day, that there will be at least a three-year warning before there's any nuclear holocaust or anything like that. People are building bomb shelters and saying on such and such a date it's going to happen. Well, that's just not it at all. That does not follow the pattern of the past. The Lord gives warning, abundant warning, and allows people, gives them time to repent or time to choose sides. Hear the word of the Lord, O leaders of Sodom, because they have sunk to that level. Is that apparent today? Ask yourselves. Do we have leaders that are like Sodomites? I don't think we even need to ask the question. So we're getting close to that time. And it is at that time that the Lord's servant gives warning. That's when the Lord's servant comes upon the scene. In Isaiah's end time scenario, the first person to come upon the scene is the king of Assyria. And that's kind of alluded to here in chapter 7, about the foreigners and the aliens. They don't go all out and invade everybody all at once. They first of all come to power and consolidate their power. And so does this king of Assyria kind of like Hitler did before the Second World War. He came to power and then he consolidated his power and then he orchestrated his invasion. And that's kind of what this Latter-day King of Assyria does. He has an alliance of nations that assists him. And we'll see all of those things. But then the Lord's servant also comes upon the scene. It's like the Lord's servant is an antidote to the King of Assyria. The one is destructive, is a power of chaos that destroys and conquers the whole world and the other is a power of creation or a power of deliverance. He's like a Moses that led the Israelites out of Egypt at the time the plagues came upon the Egyptians. So he's also the one that speaks the word of God as we'll see later on through the word links. The Lord's word is in his mouth and so forth. Take the word word and link it to other parts of Isaiah and you'll see those connections. He addresses the people's political leaders leaders of Sodom give heed to the law of our God you people of Gomorrah the law and word of God are two components of the Lord's covenant there is the law of the covenant its terms specific terms of the covenant the covenants that you make and it's usually in a written form and there is also the oral law or that which is spoken through the living prophet and that varies from time to time as occasion requires so we have that complementary idea of the law, that body of scripture or written word of God, expressing the terms and other ideas. And then there is the living word of God too. In this case, the living word is being given through his Lord's servant, which we establish through word links. We establish that idea through word links that are there. Give heed to the law of our God, our covenant God, you people of Gomorrah. So the people as a whole are as bad as the leader's. In fact, the leadership of the people in Isaiah always seems to reflect the people. They deserve what they're getting. They deserve leaders like that because they're representative of what they are, themselves. Does that make sense? They elected them, didn't they? Verse 11. For what purposes are your abundant sacrifices to me, says the Lord? Now this is the spiritual side of their lives. They are making sacrifices, Abundant sacrifices. So they are going to the temple. I've had my fill of offerings of rams and fat of fatted beasts, the blood of bulls and sheep and he goats I do not want. So they're multiplying all of these offerings sacrifices at the temple. Well, isn't this kind of literal? Doesn't this kind of refer back to literal temple sacrifice as anciently? So how could this apply to a Latter-day context? Good question, right? Well, like I said, word links help you in understanding lots of things. Take the word rams and the bulls, the sheep, the he-goats, and so on, and follow them all the way through Isaiah, and you'll see that they are a metaphor that describe people. So yes, there is this literal connotation that certainly applies in Isaiah's day when there were literal temple sacrifices of animals. These animals are all clean animals. They're all kosher animals. So. But what do the animals represent? The animals were proxies for the people who had offended, right? The animals were proxies. If a man transgressed against the law of the covenant, then he was guilty, according to the law of justice, of offending God, and guilty of death. Only the animal died in place of the man, and so he could forestall his own death. And that became a great type and shadow of Christ, because Christ's divine sacrifice could have no human precedent, and so animals were chosen as a type, rather than humans. Well, as far as a Latter-day context is concerned, the animals, since they are a metaphor of people in the book of Isaiah, represent people here who are proxies for others. And who's that? We are. What sacrifices do we make? Well, we covenant to obey the law of sacrifice, and we sacrifice by going there, our time, And our talents, and we sacrifice lots of things. And so there is a latter day connotation here, very much so when you apply it on this metaphorical level. He says he's had his fill of our sacrifices, he doesn't want them. Why? He says in verse 11, For what purpose are your abundant sacrifices to me? He asks the question, and then he answers his own question What's the purpose? To see the Lord, verse 12. When you come to see me. The question he asks at the beginning of verse 11 is answered at the beginning of verse 12. You go there to see the Lord. And if you're not there for that purpose, then everything else doesn't count for very much. When you come to see me, who requires of you to trample my courts so? That's a horrendous paradox, isn't it? Because you're there to see God. Instead, what are you doing? You're there like the dumb animals that were brought for sacrifice. Who didn't know what they were there for? Just tromping around the courts of the temple, polluting it in effect. Isn't that an awful situation? And you can see why he wouldn't want sacrifices like that, because you're not getting any closer to seeing the Lord that way, are you? It's a time to be, astute. To be time to be laid back. To be time to be feeling. And time to be in tune. And time to. Make an offering of your whole soul to God. And instead, you're just multiplying statistics. Bring no more worthless offerings, verse 13. So he considers those kind of sacrifices as of no worth. There is a loathsome incense to me. That's another illusion of a temple scenario. Because incense, all through the Old Testament, is symbolic of prayer, The prayers of the righteous rising like incense up to God's throne. And it should be a sweet incense. It should be pleasant to the Lord. Instead, these prayers are not. There are some loathsome incenses that you can buy today. And if you've been in somebody's house that'll fit them, (laughs) you want to get out of there. (laughs) As for convening meetings at the new month and on the Sabbath, wickedness with a solemn gathering I cannot approve. The problem is not that we're going to church or the synagogue or going to the temple or whatever it may be. That's not the problem. The problem is that we're bringing our garbage, our baggage with us. Wickedness with a solemn gathering I cannot approve. It's kind of a mockery to God, isn't it? To go to the temple if you're not worthy. And the same with any other solemn or spiritual meeting. Your monthly and regular meetings my soul detests. They have become a burden on me. I'm weary of putting up with them. Later on, he talks about us burdening him with his sins. Like I said, there are all these word links. There is great importance laid on keeping the Sabbath day holy in the book of Isaiah, chapter 58, for example. All these things have their good side. That's not the point. The point is that we've become pollutions. I'm weary of putting up with them. When you spread forth your hands, I will conceal my eyes from you. Though you pray at length, I will not hear. Your hands are filled with blood. Spreading forth the hands and praying at length are two legitimate and proper forms of prayer. Again, that's not the point. And we know about those forms of prayer from our own experience. But they don't do us any good if we ourselves are guilty. Of what? Blood. Blood it is the extreme form of injustice. But it also kind of covers all other forms of injustice. It kind of epitomizes injustice in general. He doesn't hear us and he doesn't see us, as far as responding to our prayers are concerned. Even when we follow legitimate forms of prayer, if they are not with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, what good did they do to us? Your hands are filled with blood. Murders, abortions... Other forms of injustice that maybe have ripple effects that who knows what cause what we cause by our wickedness. Teenage suicides. We didn't do it, they did. But did we cause it? Did we contribute to it? Did the whole society contribute to it in some small way? There's all kinds of innuendos here implications that imply the whole society. Wash yourselves clean. Remove your wicked deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. He doesn't say repent and do this. He says, this is how you repent. This is what you do. This is how he defines repentance. Else what is that? What is he telling us to do? He's telling us how to repent. Stop doing the thing that you're doing that's unjust. Cease to do evil. And that's what we teach, isn't it? That repentance involves an admission of guilt... The problem, confession of it, and involves putting away the thing itself, not doing it anymore. And he says that way you can become clean again. You can receive a remission of your sins. He implies that also. Repentance leads to remission of sins. Wash yourselves clean. You can become clean again. Cease to do evil. Good and evil have connotations of covenant-keeping and covenant-breaking again in the book of Isaiah. there are technical terms again. Doing evil means you break the terms of the covenant. To do good means to keep the terms of the covenant. And they also allude to the consequences that follow. When you keep the terms of the covenant, the blessings of the covenant follow, and they are good. When you break the terms of the covenant, the curses of the covenant follow, the plagues, the misfortunes, and they define evil. Well, they're evil. Cease to do evil. Verse 17, learn to do good. That's the opposite. He says, learn it. If you haven't learned it by now, then learn it all over again. Start from scratch. He just doesn't say, do good. He says, learn to do good. Demand justice. He defines then what good is. Just as he's defined what evil is, which was all of this hypocrisy and wickedness and so on and injustice and murders. That's evil. Now he defines good. Learn to do good. Demand justice. Stand up for the oppressed. Plead the cause of the fatherless. Appeal on behalf of the widow. Just as murder, blood, symbolized by the word blood, is the epitome of evil and of injustice, so uh, taking care of the oppressed, the widow and the fatherless, for one example, is the epitome of doing good or doing justice. Here justice and injustice are contrasted, as good and evil are. He picks on the widows and the fatherless as really just one example of the needy or the oppressed of society. He could have picked on anybody. He doesn't mean limit your actions to them. He just says, there is an extreme example. Murder is an extreme example of injustice, so he picks on another extreme example for doing good. There are many others who are oppressed. Help them too. Chapter 58 is good on that subject. Verse 18, Come now, let us put it to the test, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they can be made white as snow. Though they have reddened as crimson, they may become white as wool. Crimson and scarlet, again, is red, right? It, it's the color of blood. You've stained your garments with murders. Can you really become clean from that? In Hebrew, there are no question marks. So these could be questions. Though your sins are as scarlet, can they be made white as snow? Though they have reddened as crimson, may they become white as wool? Really? You think so? Are you kidding yourself? You think that you've murdered now and you can just become clean again? You hypocrite. I mean, that could be a possible way of looking at this. Because murder is what? The unpardonable sin? Is that what it's called? Murder is the unpardonable sin. He who sheds the blood of another cannot be forgiven till he die, right? That's in Isaiah even. By men must his blood be shed according to the law of God. So maybe these people are just kidding themselves. These people who are in this Sodom and Gomorrah society, who are guilty of blood, murders, abortions, they say, well, I can still go to church, I can still put on a good appearance, and I'll still come out okay in the end. Really? Anything less than that? Yes. Anything less than murder, or the unpardonable sin, can be forgiven. It can. No doubt. Even if you don't think so. Even if you think you're so full of guilt, guilt-ridden, and you, you think that there's no forgiveness for you, change your mind. You're being duped by Satan to think that. There is forgiveness through the atonement of Christ. So in that sense, it's not a question. In that sense, though your sins are as scarlet, they can be made white as snow. Though they have redden as the crimson, they may become white as well. You can be forgiven and become clean again. So we have to qualify that verse, don't we? You have to look at it more definitively and say there may be other levels in which we can interpret this. That's the beauty of the Hebrew prophets. There is never just one interpretation for one thing. If you say that there is, then you limit yourself to that one interpretation and exclude other levels of interpretation that are there and that are intended to be there for you, to give you more insights. That's our Western mind to say that but everything just has one interpretation and we can be so dogmatic about this and that. Little do we know what we're depriving ourselves of when we say that. Verse 19, If you're willing and obey, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you're unwilling and disobey, you shall be eaten by the sword. By his mouth the Lord has spoken it. That qualifies a whole bunch right there. The good of the land, good, as I said, is a covenant term that implies covenant keeping with attendant covenant blessings that follow. You keep the terms of the covenant, you'll be blessed the blessings of the covenant. The good of the land, land is a covenant blessing, right? The abundance of the land, the land yields her fruit and her her produce, and you benefit from that, that is a covenant blessing. It comes upon being willing and obey. Another way of translating if you're willing and obey is if you willingly obey. Hebrew sometimes doesn't have those adjectives and ways of saying things that we do today. If you willingly obey would be a good translation of that, actually. Obey what? The terms of the covenant. The very things that you have covenanted to do. But if you are unwilling and disobey, you shall be eaten by the sword. That's kind of a an antithesis there, isn't it? The sword is like the fire in verse 7. It, yes, it is literal destruction by enemies coming in, and shooting you, or ramming their bayonets through you, or whatever scenario, Latter-day scenario, would be the case. But it's also a metaphor. It's a pseudonym of the king of Assyria. He is the Lord's sword. He personifies the sword and the fire of the last days. By his mouth, the Lord has spoken it. So it's an official declaration from which the Lord does not retract. He speaks it at a time of grave warning, as in this case. He's warning of a Sodom and Gomorrah destruction and saying, these are your sins and this is what you can do about it. And you're given a time of probation now. This is the decree that the judge has given. And then he bangs the hammer down on the podium and that's it. It's over. And that's how this is. He's said his spiel and now we can do something about it or we can do nothing about it. The word mouth, too, is a metaphor of the Lord's servant and of the king of Assyria. In this case, is not the king of Assyria. The Lord doesn't speak that through him, necessarily. It is through the servant giving warning. He's the mouth of the Lord, or the mouthpiece, as we would say, of the Lord to his people. Obviously, considering the next few verses, the people don't do very much about what the Lord has said. They don't heed the warning. Not the people as a whole. The pattern of the scriptures is that when the Lord gives warning through his servants, there are always a few who do heed the warning. And it is for the sake of those few who will heed the warning that the warning is given. And they are the ones who survive the destruction, the sword and the fire, like the daughter of Zion left like a shelter in a vineyard, a city under siege. They are the few survivors of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 9. But as a whole, the people don't give heed to the warning. In fact, when they're in a state of extreme wickedness, what is their reaction? Hail fellow, well met, pat on the back, Thank you for the warning. It's just what I needed. <laughs> no. They harden their hearts all the more, don't they? As we see in chapter 6, when Isaiah gives a warning to the people, they will harden their hearts all the more. And thus they will confirm themselves in their wickedness. And then it becomes like, a, like bands in chapter 26. The bands become severe, Isaiah says, because you're more confirmed in your wickedness, therefore you're more locked in to your course of action and to the consequences of that action. You actually seal upon yourself your own destruction, your damnation. That's what we have here in verse 21. How the faithful city has become a harlot. How is a lament. That's how the book of Lamentations starts off. How could this have happened? How did we let that happen? Why couldn't it have been wiser? And that's what this is. It's a lament because the prophet foresees the destruction that's coming because the people have not chosen to repent how the faithful city a people who were the faithful covenant people of the Lord they were faithful to him they were that city like I said in Isaiah there are two cities there is the faithful city that becomes the harlot and there were those who were cast off who become a faithful city there is the the wife who was cast off who is taken back She renews her allegiance to her husband, the Lord. And there is the wife who is the wife, the spouse of the Lord right now. And she commits adultery and becomes alienated from him and is cast off. Two cities, two women, two covenants, two ideas. And they reflect the status of the two groups of covenant people that we mentioned. The ethnic lineages of Israel, the natural branches of the olive tree, or the mingled lineages of Israel, the wild branches that were grafted in. There are always these two groups Two entities. And here we have the other one. The one that is presently the covenant people will become a harlot. She was filled with justice. Righteousness made its abode in her, but now murderers. She was filled with justice. Justice and righteousness are the foundation of all good. They're the foundation of all blessings. Justice and righteousness are part of the covenant relationship that God's people have with him. The whole law of the covenant and the word of God are about justice and righteousness. Their whole substance involves justice and righteousness. You're just in your dealings with your fellow man. You're righteous in the sense that you serve God, again, by serving your fellow man or woman. What does the servant do when he comes along? His job is to establish justice and righteousness. Any servant of God's job is to establish justice and righteousness as much as is able to. When you depart from those things, there's nothing left. She was filled with justice. Righteousness made its abode in her, but now murderers. Righteousness is also a pseudonym or a metaphor describing the Lord's servant. Chapter 41, verse 2, calls him righteousness. He personifies righteousness. Righteousness comes from the East. It's a person. The Lord, too, is described by a metaphor like righteousness. He's called salvation. He personifies salvation. In the book of Isaiah, righteousness and salvation go hand in hand. Righteousness precedes salvation. It's a precondition of salvation. You qualify for salvation by being righteous. When we're far from righteousness, when God's people are far from righteousness, far from living righteously, as in chapter 46, the Lord sends righteousness, the person, to establish righteousness among them. Because God cannot save them from the destruction that's coming upon the world, upon the wicked, unless they're righteous. His job is to bring them to a level of righteousness that's acceptable before God. And this is God's righteousness, not our own self-righteousness. We have to go by his definition of righteousness, not by our own. The righteousness of those people who are offering sacrifices in the temple and going multiplying statistics and going to their meetings on the Sabbath day and raising their hands in prayer and praying at length, that's their righteousness. That's not God's righteousness. Backed up with good deeds, taking care of the oppressed, the widows, the poor and the needy, that's righteousness. Those forms of worship would then be valid. Here it says, she was filled with justice, righteousness made its abode in her. These people did observe God's righteousness. And the sad part of it is that they fell away from it and when they fall away from such light, then what happens usually, the patterns of the scriptures, is that they what? They become more wicked than they, and hardened than they ever were before, right? This fits the, the description or the pattern of the scriptures. Okay, we're in verse 22. Your silver has become dross, your wine diluted with water. Okay, right there, silver and gold are precious metals. And in Isaiah, the precious metals and stones symbolize the elect. And the semi-precious and the common metals and stones symbolize other categories of people. Isaiah and the Hebrew prophets often use that kind of imagery. And Malachi says, "...then those who feared the Lord spake often one with another in a time of wickedness, when the wicked were established." And a book of remembrance was written of the things that they spoke. And he says, These will I make my jewels when he comes in his glory. Then will you discern between the righteous and the wicked, those who serve God and those who don't serve him. And he says the next verse, is the wicked will be as ashes under their feet. That's how you'll discern the wicked in that day. The point there is that the elect are like jewels. And in Isaiah they're like jewels. They're precious stones. And they are what we call a celestial category of people. And same with gold and silver. They are precious metals and they symbolize a celestial category of people. And later on in the book of Isaiah, we see that everything goes upward a step. What is now semi precious becomes precious, and what is now common becomes semi precious. Society ascends a level and the lowest category is eliminated. But the earth is also going forward in its progression. And if people don't go forward in their progression with it, they will be eliminated from the earth, and that's what happens in the last days, this time of destruction. The point here is that that which was precious or elect or celestial has become dross. Dross is not even the common metal. Dross is another category identifies what we call sons of perdition. Isaiah shows that it will be that bad that those who are now of a celestial category will become son of perdition category. Of course, that's what happens once you fall from grace after you have become one of the elect. Then that is the only possibility. Now, Isaiah doesn't say that this is a generalized case. Across the board, he just says that that is present. Now, that's one connotation when you consider the imagery of precious metals and stones. There's also the literal, like I said, which is always the first connotation, of interpretation. Rather than look at it symbolically or metaphorically, we just look at it plainly and say, our money, because the Hebrew word for silver also means money, our money has become worthless. It's been devalued. We may be going through a devaluation here soon. Who knows? And after that, our money will be pretty well useless. Or we've had an economic collapse or whatever, and now money is like before the Second World War when to buy a loaf of bread you had to bring a whole wheelbarrow load of Deutsche Marks to the store, right? And so that's an example. It's even something out of our own day. Your wine diluted with water, that's in parallel with it. It could be referring to products that the quality of products isn't the same what it used to be. But again, the word wine too in Isaiah is used in a metaphorical sense. The imagery of food and drink is used of spiritual food and spiritual drink. The word of God is food to the eater, it says in Isaiah. And so, this could be the diluting of the word of God. It could be just um, diluting it down to where it's only half strength, and that's not enough. Get you by. Your rulers are renegades, accomplices of robbers. Why Would I give those things a spiritual connotation in verse 22? Because almost always the spiritual and the political are parallel, like I said, as they were in verses 10 and 11. And so it is here, the next verse, 23, is more the political aspect of things. Your rulers are renegades, accomplices of robbers. So the very people whom those in government are to protect the society from they themselves have become robbers. So more than just people going about robbing houses, they're robbing in the sense of taking power to themselves, committing secret murders and to get gain in power and to uh, destroy people's agencies and lift themselves up and so forth. With one accord, they love bribes and run off to rewards. That's also robbing. But it shows that that will be present in the society. Well, we don't hear a lot about that, you might say. Well, would you hear a lot about that if it was going on? <laughs> no. Uh, we do hear some things about it. We hear uh, favors that are done, right? The one accord they love bribes and run off rewards. They do not dispense justice to the fatherless, nor does the widow's case come before them. Now, it's the opposite of what verse 17 says. Whereas the fatherless and widows represent the needy elements of society, the very people whom they should be most ministering to, these people turn their backs on them, as it were. Therefore the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the Valiant One of Israel declares, whenever you see something like that, you know that he means business. He doesn't bring all of his titles to bear like that, unless he's speaking in a very serious vein. The Lord, in Hebrew, appears as Jehovah. Therefore Jehovah, the Lord of hosts, Jehovah of hosts, meaning the Lord who commands the hosts, who can call upon the hosts of heaven to assist him. And when he intervenes upon the earth, he does use them. He has whole armies of angels at his disposal. The Valley One of Israel. That term is like the Holy One of Israel. Both of those ideas appear throughout the book of Isaiah, The Holy One of Israel is a title that appears more frequently, but the Valiant One of Israel is used often to describe the Lord as well. Both of those terms, holy or valiant one, are used in an exemplary sense in Isaiah. He's valiant and he's holy, and so should we be valiant and holy. He's a model for us to follow. We should emulate him in those divine attributes. The elect are the valiant servants of the Lord. They're not just any old servants. The elect are like him in that they're valiant. The elect also are called the holy ones in the book of Isaiah. They emulate his divine attribute of holiness. Woe to them. Woe is the official pronunciation of a covenant curse. So it's not just the people are following evil, they're breaking the covenant... And now the curses of the covenant are creeping up on them. Yes, that does happen. But here the Lord is pronouncing a curse upon them. He's damning them, as it were. How does he do that? Well, through his servants, the prophets, he does it. Who are his mouth or mouthpiece to them. Woe to them! I will relieve me of my adversaries, avenge me of my enemies. He's going to dispose himself of these people. Who are they? Somebody from the outside? No, they are his own people. They're rulers and their leaders, both spiritual and political. He's going to relieve himself of them. He calls them his enemies and his adversaries, as they have made themselves. So. Verse twenty-five: I will restore my hand over you and smelt away your dross as in a crucible and remove all your alloy. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as in the beginning there we have two instances of the word restore in parallel. I will restore, I will restore. So, in response to that situation of corruption and wickedness among the leadership and among the people in general, he's going to do some restoring. What is he going to restore? His hand. What's that? The hand in the book of Isaiah is another one of those metaphors or pseudonyms that identify as the Lord's servant or the king of Assyria. In this case, it's not the king of Assyria because it's a friendly situation. So it has to be the Lord's servant. Who is the Lord's right hand? We would say a right-hand man. But in the book of Isaiah, he personifies the hand of the Lord as well as a lot of other things. As the king of Assyria personifies the left hand of the Lord or the hand with which the Lord smites his people to punish them. The Lord's servant is the Lord's right hand that delivers his righteous people from destruction. So the restoring of the Lord's hand over them, over his people, means that he raises up the Lord's servant to them, like he would raise up Moses to the Israelites. And what is he going to do? What will be the result of his ministerial mission? To smelt away the dross, as in a crucible. Now the dross are the apostates again, in a particular sense, sons of perdition. Those who are not even a common metal. They're the silver that turned to dross that we saw in verse 22. Now the crucible in Isaiah does apply to the day of judgment when the wicked will be destroyed by the king of Assyria. And he's also the one that removes the alloy which is common metal or a mixture of common metal. The king of Assyria does that. So the word hand here could have a double connotation of judgment on the one hand and deliverance on the other in the sense that that these people, the wicked, will become subject to the power of the king of Assyria, and they will be in his power for him to destroy them. But primarily here the connotation is friendly, that uh, the Lord's hand being in parallel with the judges in verse 26, implies a new or better form of government than has been existing. In verse 26 says, I will store your judges as at the first and your counselors as in the beginning. That's a friendly situation. And that situation prevailed in Israel's history as a type or a precedent in the days of Moses. In the beginning and at the first was in Israel's earliest history when Israel became a nation in the Sinai wilderness. And Moses led the people of Israel And also appointed judges to judge the cases of the people, and he dealt with the hardest cases. And they were given counsel as then. Also the book of Judges is a reference to the word judges in Israel's history. The judges judged the cases of the people in their day. So we have here an allusion to a form of government like that of Moses and the elders of Israel, as a type in Israel's past. And what does this lead to? After this you shall be called a city of righteousness, a faithful city. So the faithful city that became a harlot, in other words, is going to go through or those of the Lord's people who come under that head, or that category, they will experience some kind of uh, reshuffling or restoration or reinstitution of the Lord's type of government, a kind of theocracy as existed under Moses and the elders, as well as judges. And as a result of that, a people will again become faithful, called the city of righteousness. And the city of righteousness is again the city of the Lord's servant who personifies righteousness. Not only just a righteous city, it's a righteous city, yes. It's the people who make up this city are the righteous or the elect of God. They're the same city that's under siege in verse 8, who are identified there as the daughter of Zion. And as they are here in the next verse, verse 27, referring to Zion. Zion is the city of righteousness. But righteousness doesn't just identify a righteous people, its inhabitants, but also the Lord's servant who does this restoring or who is part of this restoration. So, in other words, when the Lord restores his hand, which is also his servant, those false rulers and leaders will lose their power with the Lord's people. Something will happen to cleanse the situation and to restore order among the Lord's people. And all the sons of perdition will no longer be present among them. They will be cut off or removed or smelted away. And they will become subject to the king of Assyria, who will eliminate them. He's the one that does that kind of destroying in the book of Isaiah. Now, the smelting in a crucible also implies that the silver remains, right? You smelt away the dross, but what's left? The silver. And those are the ones who are implicated here as far as the judges, the counselors, and the righteous city are concerned, the faithful ones. What is this city? Zion, verse 27. For Zion shall be ransomed by justice, those of her who repent by righteousness. Again, on a fundamental level, justice and righteousness are the two virtues or attributes of God that are the foundation of all good, of God's blessings. They underline covenant keeping, covenant relationship with God, There is no other covenant relationship possible except on that basis with the Lord. That's one level. On another level, righteousness again is a pseudonym or metaphor of the Lord's servant who personifies righteousness. Again, how can someone personify righteousness? Why would the Lord call him as such? We look in chapter 41, verse 2, and we see there that it is a person who has raised up righteousness from the east, it says, calling him to the place of his foot, who has delivered nations to him, toppled their rulers, rending them as dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his ball. He's a person. And then later on, in chapter 62, verse 11, the Lord has made proclamation to the end of the earth, tell the daughter of Zion, see your salvation comes, his reward with him, his work preceding him. He's a person. The Lord is coming there. It's the coming of the Lord to the earth. And always righteousness and salvation... Act in concert; they act together. In the Book of Isaiah, righteousness precedes salvation. Righteousness is a forerunner of salvation. Like John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ's first coming, so the Lord's servant is a forerunner of His second coming. And He personifies righteousness because He keeps the law of the covenant and proves faithful to the Lord under all conditions. He epitomizes righteousness. He is an exemplar or a model of righteousness. The same as the Lord Himself epitomizes salvation. He is our Savior. The name Jesus means salvation, Yeshua. It's a noun meaning salvation. And So that's that's the purpose here. This servant's mission is not for his own aggrandizement, self-aggrandizement, or anything like that. The purpose of his mission here is to establish righteousness among the people, a righteous city or people of God to whom the Lord can come whom the Lord can then come and save from the destruction that's coming. So the ransoming by justice implies ransoming from that destruction, from the destruction of the wicked. These are ransomed out of it. Take the word ransom through. It's a word link. Take it all the way through the book of Isaiah. And you'll see that, first of all, it's a parallel with the word redeemed. To be ransomed or redeemed are two parallel ideas in the book of Isaiah. However, if you follow the word redeemed all the way through its context, you'll see that redemption is more of a spiritual nature and ransoming is more of a temporal or physical nature. Like I said, from the physical destruction that the king of Assyria wreaks upon the whole earth. Zion shall be ransomed by justice because he's not going to ransom the unjust, the wicked, those of her who repent by righteousness. Here we have a parallelism of lines 1 and 2. A synonymous parallelism. Justice and righteousness are synonymous. The word ransom is carried over from the first line to the second. And Zion is paralleled with those of her who repent. Who's her? Her is the woman Israel, with whom God has covenanted. Is Zion the same as Israel? No. It is an elect group within Israel. Those of Israel who repent. Not everybody. Those who repent, who obtain a remission of their sins are clean. we have washed themselves clean. In contrast with them, in the next verse, we have criminals and sinners. The criminals and sinners shall be altogether shattered when those who forsake the Lord are annihilated. The criminals and sinners are there in a parallelism with those who forsake the Lord. They're not just criminals and sinners from somewhere else. They're from within the Lord's own people, like the enemies and adversaries we had a moment ago. If they are harassing his people and not ministering justice to the fatherless and widows, are they his friends or his enemies? Obviously his enemies. Same here. When you forsake the Lord, what's left for you? Where do you go? Well, you go into a state of wickedness, right? And what do you end up as? A criminal and a sinner, right? That's your, that kind of defines what you are when you forsake the Lord. Well, these will be shattered and annihilated that we eliminated in a nice way? No. To be shattered doesn't sound very friendly, does it? In the book of Isaiah, what happens to these people? What happens to the wicked city? It goes into the dust. And dust is a chaos motif. It means it goes back to its elemental state, to becoming a non entity. They're actually physically annihilated. Just like Malachi said also. Then you will discern between the righteous and the wicked and the wicked will be as dust under your feet. Verse 29. And you will be ashamed of the oaks you cherished and blush for the parks you were fond of. Now the oaks and the parks here are in parallel. And that was a form of worship in ancient Israel. It was an idolatrous form of worship where people were out in nature and they were doing orgiastic types of things out there. And later on in the book of Isaiah we see also that that they're cultists, and they're offering human sacrifices and other things like that. However, here he's not getting into that quite yet. Here he's more alluding to the beginnings of those kinds of things. The words cherish and fond of give you a clue. In Hebrew, those words have the connotation of fawning adulation. The Hebrew word actually is hot. You're hot. You're in heat after these kind of things. It implies a perversion And the next verse gives us a better clue, the next two verses, of what this is all about. Yes, it is a kind of nature worship, as people did anciently in the Baal cult. But also, we see that they're idolizing people in society. You shall become like an oak whose leaves wither as a garden that has no water. In Hebrew, the word for oak, El, also means a mighty one. In fact, it's the same word for God, El, We say Elohim to identify God, but the word El is also a God, and it can also have the connotation of just a mighty person. And the oaks in general in the book of Isaiah are a metaphor describing the mighty oaks of society, the elite peoples of the earth. We have the cedars, the high and mighty cedars, and the oaks that are hewn down by the king of Assyria. And they represent people in society, the lofty people, people of power, wealth, position whom people idolize. They're fawning over these people, according to these verbs. So on a metaphorical level, it goes beyond just nature worship. It goes into idolatry, or human idolatry, idolatry of uh, idolizing people in society. Do we have that problem today? Who do we idolize today? Movie stars and sports heroes and some politicians. Yeah. Wealthy people, the high and mighty of society, the elite. That's what's alluded to here, the way that Isaiah uses this play on words with the word el and elil. In the other Hebrew prophets, I was going to say, there are idol shepherds, like shepherd meaning a religious leader of a person, and they become idols to people. They do qualify also. The mighty Again, using the word mighty is the same word as the oak in Hebrew, so that it's people we're talking about on one level. The mighty shall be as refuse, their works a spark. Refuse is a chaos motif. Right now, these people are high and lifted up, and there are certain people who idolize them. Well, they're going to be as refuse. They're going to be, as we get in chapter 2, that which is now high and lifted up is going to be reduced and abased. Refuse is certainly an image that you wouldn't want to be associated with. Their works a spark. The works of these people are the very thing that ignites the whole conflagration, the whole destruction of the wicked. It is their wicked works. And it is the works of the mighty of the earth, not just people in general. In a particular sense, it's their works. The whole structure of society is based upon these works of the mighty. And it is a false structure. And we'll see later on how a Babylon structure is based upon the manufacture, sale, and promotion of the works of men's hands, of idols. It is a false economic structure and social structure. And it's going to be eliminated, because we're going to have a new society, a Zion society, take its place. The mighty shall be as refuse, their works as spark, both shall burn up alike, and there shall be none to extinguish. So them and their works at the same time will be burnt up. How will they be burnt up? By the fire. What fire? King the king of Assyria. Will anyone extinguish the fire? Will anyone come to their rescue? No. He keeps saying that over and over